The following message is from the 2019 IBCD Training Institute, Identity Crisis. Lord, thank you for a chance for us to spend this time thinking together about how especially to help those who are struggling with pornography. We pray in your son's name. Amen. Well, my name is Deepak Reju, and we're in this session, I'm a Porn Struggler. And if you haven't already, you want to grab handouts that are at each corner. Uh, in pornography, I want to start by talking about war. Now, you read any good history of war, and you'll find out that a multi-front war is the hardest kind of battle to win. You have to split your armies, your resources, and your attention, and you have to face multiple enemies who use different tactics and have different goals. As soon as you think you've actually strengthened up one of the lines of battle, then you find out another line is faltering in a different side of the battlefront. And after losing on any of those fronts, you feel like there's certain doom overall for the war. Well, the war that we're fighting has enemies on every side, with men and women struggling right in the middle of it. If you didn't already know this, then welcome. Welcome to the battle. Uh, we fight pornography. This war isn't fundamentally against pornography, though porn is the devastating weapon used against us. It is against lustful desires and intents of our own hearts. It's a world full of temptation and an unseen enemy as unrelenting as a hungry lion. These are the different enemies pursuing us on the different fronts of this war, and these enemies battle simultaneously. You don't necessarily adopt a different tactic to battle the devil than you do lust. The fronts of this war are rather the avenues in which we pursue to help prevent these enemies from their attack. You know, attack they will. They'll attack on all sides. They'll attack you from every direction possible. And they'll do it in ways that divide your attention and leave you sandwiched in a situation where you don't easily see the connection between everything that's actually happening. And so they'll do everything they can to overtake you. So what I want to do in our time together over this next hour is do what I'll call a strategy session. And here's my overall goal. The goal is to help you see the connections and to understand a bit more how a coordinated strategy for the multiple fronts in this war on pornography. Now, whether you're a struggler yourself or you're helping someone through the struggle, you'll likely already felt the fact that the war against pornography can't be reduced to one simple front. Uh, it's not just about deciding to not look again or getting rid of internet access in your apartment or having an accountability partner or even praying more. You've got to be strong on one front and not leave yourself exposed in the flank. You've actually got to shore up the flank and, only, and when you do, you only make yourself more vulnerable in the rear. It's a multi-front roar. There are so many enemies in this particular battle. But this multi-front war is not a losing war. The Christian is not divided in limited resources, vainly sending undersupplied forces to their respective fronts. Uh, Christian's resources are unlimited, and a fresh supply is always available and more on the way. The limitless power is not at mankind's disposal in military conquests, but it is in spiritual ones. 
with the right supply of resources, there's an inexhaustible resource as we turn to Christ. Even in a multi-front war against pornography, it actually can be won. Now, you hear what I say in that. Some of you are helping people right now, and that's actually hard to believe. You, you, you've helped not just a person, but you've helped persons, and the struggle hasn't just been weeks, it's been months and years. And so the, the first question is, actually, do you believe what I'm saying? That in this multi-front war, we have spiritual resources to actually help us win the battle. So in, in this multi-front war, we're going to encounter four fronts of the battle. And this is going to be our framework in which we're going to work through. Here's what I'm going to call them, the God front, the self front, the people front, and the circumstance front. And I'm going to explain each one of these and then apply it to a case study in our time together. These are meant to represent the different spheres of reality in which human beings function and respond. Our hearts operate in relation to a creator, in relation to ourselves, in relation to other people, and in relation to our circumstances. And in thinking about any problem, you should always consider how the problem is expressing itself in each one of these fronts. So it's not just a framework for pornography. This is a framework that Jeremy Pierre and I use, and we apply it to any particular problem. So what I'm doing is applying it to pornography uh, and helping you see how it works out. Now, let me give you a quick overview of each of these different fronts. In a real war, the most vital front is the one that needs to be protected by your supply source. And that's the case in our metaphor as well. The most important front in this war is the God front. The God front, we mean specifically how your heart relates to God, which is faith or unbelief. It would have been fine to call this the faith front also. How the heart relates to God is the single most important aspect of our human experience. How our heart relates to God is the single most important aspect of our human experience. It is the front that maintains access to this limitless supply source from the gospel. It is faith by faith we receive the gospel of Jesus Christ and are supplied with all the resources of his redemptive work on our behalf. The second one you see, there's a circumstance front, is the battle with lust in the daily situations in which a person finds himself. This battle will involve careful strategy about everything in life, using computers and mobile devices, planning weekends, traveling arrangements for a particular time, setting up daily <coughs> schedules, thinking carefully about living situations. The more fierce the opposition and the more defensive our strategy is going to need to be. The self-front is simply the internal battle for governance over our own thinking, our desires, our feelings, our intentions. It's our inner world. It's our heart and our mind. Uh, it's no secret that we all live out of a sense of identity. That's what we've been talking about through this weekend. And that's shaped by our memories, our thoughts, our feelings, our dedications, our value systems, our secret longings. So this internal war is actually for our hearts and our minds. And then the last one is the people front. Uh, it's the battle with lust over relationships and how it affects our relationships. Giving into sexual lust has a devastating effect on all of our relationships. And if the enemy can isolate a person enough, he can eventually overrun these other fronts. 
a man's fall into pornography will affect the way he handles his wife or interacts with his friends. You know, I, 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 I realized this as I was doing marital counseling over the last few years, how often a husband is prideful and coming down on his wife and even being mean. And how many times later on I figured out, oh, he was struggling with pornography. It wasn't so much that he's a mean guy. There was a connection between the pride and his pornography and the self-righteousness and his pornography. And it was just manifesting itself in the way he was treating his wife. Time and time again, you begin to see how pornography forgets, for, affects our relationships in all kinds of ways. So a woman's fall into pornography will warp the way she thinks about how she relates to men. And less warps our understanding of intimacy and it cripples our accountability. It isolates people from those who are closest to them. And most tragically, married couples and engaged couples and friendships can be ruined by this. So all four fronts are considered for the strategy to be effective. Many of us know the experience of putting all our attention actually on just one or two of these fronts. You know, think about it. Most people, as they, you think of those four fronts, spend a lot of time on the circumstances. Building firewalls, finding ways to protect our phones, getting people from not looking online. And yet, all four of these fronts are really necessary to have a comprehensive strategy. We set internet filters or delete troublesome apps from our phones, but continue to hide it from our spouses or friends. Or we confess uh, in an eruption of guilt, tears before the Lord, but we have little sense for deeper longings that make porn compelling to us. Or we meet faithfully with accountability partner, but rarely seek the Lord and directly confess our, our faults and trust to Him. Disjointed strategies actually lead to disjointed fighting. And I think often that's a much of our failure in helping people who are struggling. As Satan has been at this war a lot longer than we have, you know that when the lines falter, he's throwing his main force to cut off the supply source. So in the midst of this war, as the battle rages on every side, we can often lose sight of the fact that the most important victory has actually already been accomplished. The theater of this war is the cross, and Christ entered into this theater as the only one who ever was free of sin and uncaptured by its power. He offered himself for the sins of others by taking their sins upon himself and facing the consequence due to them, which is eternal death. This is the first way in which he had victory over sin, by taking away the penalty on sins, then he rose from the dead, dismantling death from the inside. And that's the second way he had victory over sin, by neutralizing the power over sins, freeing them to live under the orders of a new authority. So the Lord Jesus disarmed sin, and that gives us an unequivocal victory. That, that's where we camp our hope on. Not, not in all of these strategies, which I'm going to lay out for you, because you can get distracted by, okay, what do I just need to do to make this problem go away? But we start here in remembering that because of Christ's victory, we can actually help other people have victory. We have to start there, otherwise we'll start in the wrong spot. There were no rights that the defeated party could retain, no partial treaties, and no concessions. It was a total defeat of sin and evil. It cannot 
hold penalty over those who come to Christ by faith, nor can it maintain its impossible grip of power. Those who have experienced the constant tyranny of lust's grip on their minds and wills have had a hard time believing this. Do you know this? You've worked with folks who are struggling with it, who get to this place of despair and having a hard time to believe that the promises are worth it, that their victory is actually possible. In fact, they get to such a hard spot, they can't even conceive of what a porn-free life could look like. There is a kind of hopelessness that enters in. But believe it, they must if they're going to have access to Christ's victory. How could we call it faith if actually nothing we're riding on it? Faith makes victory possible in the present experience of a believer who's fighting a war that's very much not over. Now, as a Christian stops relying on himself to defeat sin and puts his faith in Christ's finished work on the cross, he'll begin to put to death the sin that entangled him for so long and will start living in the fullness of life that God actually intends for him. This trajectory is successful, but can be incomplete, but certain. And it can be imperfect, but actually tangible. When a person believes that the victory was already accomplished by Christ's redemptive work, and this faith increasingly influences his thoughts, desires, and intentions, he'll experience victory in ways he probably had never thought realistic. So... The strategy for victory on the multiple fronts of the war must be arranged upon the victory already accomplished in Christ. So that, that's our theological parameters that define our conversation. Now what I want to do, the practical realities, is I'm going to read to you a case study because I want to be specific about a situation. And I want to take all four of those fronts and work through it and help you think a little bit about how to work in one person's life. And as we go along the way, I want you to jot down questions, and we'll talk about some of the specifics at the end. So here's the case study. It's a guy named David, a single man who's struggling with pornography. 23 and single, David has wrestled with pornography for years. He fights daily, some days winning, many days losing. He's doing what he should do, but he knows he needs help. So he comes to you. David's struggle started in ninth grade. Several of his friends were looking at pornography on their computers, which is how he was first introduced to it. He remembers looking for it on his own, and it didn't take long to find it. Staring at naked women for the first time, he was both surprised and excited. He felt a mixture of curiosity and arousal all at the same time. The day after, he felt ashamed, so he avoided going back to the website for a few months his parents hadn't said anything to him about sex, leaving him to figure it out on his own. He lingered over that initial excited feeling, and his curiosity got to him. Two months later, he looked again. He found a pornographic site and plunged in. Over the next few days and then weeks, he looked daily, and his hunger grew and grew and grew. His desires for porn quickly overtook his life. One day, his father walked in as David was consuming nude pictures. Shocked, his father didn't know what to do at first. Muscles on his face tightened, eyebrows furrowed. His father bellowed, what are you doing? Silence. David didn't say a word. All he could do was wallow in shame. He looked down, not able to make eye contact with his father. 
The next 30 minutes were painful. His father cross-examined him and every question laced with anger. David owned up to his struggles, but that didn't make the conversation easier. The next day, his father offered accountability. They met a couple of times over the coming weeks. As normal, his father got busy with other things. Accountability dropped off. Left alone again, David fought his addiction on his own, and a seed of bitterness was planted in his heart. The Lord saved David at the end of high school through a youth group retreat. The porn stopped for a few months after his conversion. Several times he thought, maybe I'm finally done with this. Maybe I'm finally free of porn. But that turned out not to be true. In college, it took no more than a few weeks before David hunted for porn again. This continued with only brief periods of reprieve. In college, I talked with my pastor, but he got frustrated with me. He kept telling me the same things, repent of my sins, read my Bible, pray, trust in Christ. And after a while, it was as if the pastor didn't know what else to say, recalls David, this time with a look of frustration. I kept on reading, repenting, and praying, but nothing changed. After college, David moved to a major city to start a new job. He resolved to do something about the problem. He read scripture, prayed, and read books about fighting pornography, but on, on his own, he didn't find success in stopping his sin. In his first meeting with you, he confesses, I feel like a major failure. I can go a few days without doing it, but then I always come back to it. I can't help it. I need more. But I do it again, and then I feel horrible afterwards, says David, with guilt written all over his face. It's like a dog returning to his own vomit. David slugs his way through a stressful job. Overwhelmed by the pressure, he locks the door at work and submerges himself into porn. None of his roommates know about the problem, and apart from you, no one else at church knows about it. David's shame stands as a barrier that keeps him from talking to others. I'm very, very embarrassed about my struggles, he says. I feel dirty every time I finish a bout with pornography. He talks to his best friend, Jason, but transparent conversations are rare. Their schedules are so busy, they live in two, like two ships passing in the night. David has a few friends at church, but for the most part, he feels trapped in terminally casual relationships. Most of his friendships with other men lack depth and genuine vulnerability. He often feels alone. He recently asked a girl out at church, and she turned him down. In the aftermath, his feelings of rejection piled on top of his lingering guilt from the porn addiction. Some days, David downplays the problem. He thinks, it's not that big of a deal, or I can get control of it, or it's it's not going to hurt anyone, or one day when I'm married, this will all go away, or even I don't want to burden other people. At other points, he obsesses over his struggle so much that he doubts whether or not he is even saved. David finally came to an end of himself and realized he was deceiving himself, which is why he came to you for help. Doubt often plagued him because his porn struggle stubbornly persists. When he describes God, he says, I know God is good, but he is not good to me. Okay, that's our case study. Let's work through the four fronts in regards to David's life. And remember, the first one's the God front. Remember that the God front focuses on the spiritual parts of this battle, anything that deals with God and Christ and faith and repentance. We want to know about God's, uh, David's personal relationship with God. So how does he see God? 
Who is God to David? Is God loving? Is he a loving father? Uh, is he cold or distant? How David thinks about God, what is his theology of God, actually affects everything. So it's, it's, it's worth your time to begin to ask, where does he see God and who is God to him in the midst of this struggle? Theology matters for how we live. And David believes that God is good. You heard that theological truth. But God is not good to him. The personal application of this truth to his own life. And you see the divide there. He can acknowledge all the good theology you want. But in the midst of his struggle, he actually doesn't see that theological truth apply to him. So you want to be careful in your conversations. Because a lot of these strugglers have been to church long enough and been reading their Bible. They can articulate the right Sunday school answer. But if you press in, they actually don't see that truth applying to themselves. You want to help them with that. It becomes clear that his relationship with his father actually affected the way he views God as a heavenly father. Remember, bitterness sprung up in David's heart after his father stopped giving him accountability. What was it? It was anger initially, a little bit of accountability, and then his father drifted off. And as was David's case, and then he felt isolated and alone in his struggles all over again. Now, David wrestled with the question, if God cares, why doesn't he help me? He does not believe God cares for him. One thing we can do as disciples is help David see who God is. To personally understand God's character and his love. Now, you know, this is a little bit different than what you'd expect because everybody wants the tactical and the practical. Let's just figure out the strategies for how to slow him down on looking on his phone. And I'm going to talk about that in just a moment. But no, this is where I want to start. Like, help him to understand the character of God. Because as we'll find, as he understands the character of God, that will trickle down into everything else in his life. So don't, don't put that on the back burner. Make sure that is a primary part of your conversation. To help him understand who God is. A distorted view of God will undermine everything in David's life especially hindering his ability to make progress in fighting pornography. If David can't see God rightly, he'll ultimately lose this battle. Well, we want to ask about David's sin struggles. You know, we expect that the sin patterns to be more deeply ingrained for someone who has struggled with porn since a teenager or even younger compared to someone who struggled just a few times. Why is that? Because you expect that the struggle is much more ingrained into their life. You know, it's not just an occasional try. It's a habit that's ingrained. So you think of a, a, a cruise liner. You know, when you see one of those huge cruise liners uh, and moving in a direction with particular momentum... You don't see that cruise liner make a quick and sharp turn. You know, because of the years of moving in one direction, in order to help them turn around, it's actually one of those long turns in order to begin to head it in a different direction. So uh, when, when I'm asking about their history, I'm listening for that because if in their sexual history, this has been going on for years, and you're, you're beginning to hit those generations where it's actually been you know, a decade or more that they've been struggling with it. When I first started dealing with this, it was guys who had been struggling for a year or two or three as the Internet had shown up and pornography started to become pervasive. Now it's guys who actually have been struggling with it since they were in elementary school. And now they're in their 20s. So we've got 
guys who've been in it and gals who've been in it substantially for years, for years. And that affects their ability to get out of it. Because if they've been in this for a long time, you're going to have to take a long-term view. This is not going to change overnight since it's deeply ingrained patterns. The longer the addict looks at porn, the more momentum he will have in this particular direction and the harder it will be to reverse the pattern. So that long, hard turn is what we need to expect. And it's good for you to have that expectation. It's good for me, to have, for the struggler, to have that expectation. Set the expectations right at the beginning. The more he makes provision for the flesh, Romans 13, 14, the more difficult the fight will be. David looks at porn when things are stressful. It's a kind of emotional numbing for him. You know what he used to do? When things were stressed out at work, he would just simply lock the door in his office and plunge himself into pornography. And that was his way to relieve the stress, to, to literally numb himself with that pornography emotionally. It was his way to escape the burdens of this life. And that's one of many ways in which strugglers will use pornography to actually escape the stress in their life or escape their troubles. Now, porn struggles grow so comfortable with their sin that they lose that ferocious edge that was needed in the battle. Now, think of Matthew chapter 5. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better for you to lose one of your members than for your whole body be thrown into hell. Now, what's Jesus saying to us here? He's using hyperbole, but he's using this to make a point. You know, what we see with strugglers is over time, they become passive. They grow comfortable with their sin. They lose that edginess that's needed to actually be aggressive in the fight. And so I'll often in my very first meeting, open up to Matthew 5 and read this section and say to them, how are you in comparison to what Jesus is asking of you? You know, what is Jesus asking? He's asking for us to be radical and serious about the sin. And how often the struggle will say, no, I've grown lazy about it. I've grown too comfortable with my sin. So at the very beginning, there's a call to arms to help them to begin to line themselves up with that. Passivity fails in fighting temptations. It's grossly neglectful. And no one actually ignores a tumor. Because you know it's going to grow. <laughs> Porn is cancerous and grows if we leave it alone. For the Christian empowered by the Holy Spirit and the Word, only an aggressive disposition against sin is suitable for this battle. Anything less than this would be disregarding Christ's instructions. Now, we encourage David to pursue repentance. You know, I want you to picture the conscience as a circle. And what you see, actually, I think you have it there, the next page. What you see, the conscience, that's your conscience on the top, the dividing line right through the, 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 the good and right and the evil and the wrong. Uh, a clear, distinct line dividing good and evil, right from wrong. Uh, in his conscience, after repeated exposure, the line becomes fuzzy and less distinct. The first time a guy or a gal starts looking at pornography, the alarm bells goes off. 
the conscience actually is quickened and awakened and speaks up. Like, like don't do this. No, 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 don't. It's exciting, but it's wrong. But after repeated exposures, time and time and time again, what happens? The alarm bells grow silent. What happens? We actually deaden our conscience. And we can do that. With, with enough exposure, we actually deaden how the conscience works. You know, because I, I, as I was thinking about this years ago, as I began to help strugglers, why is it that someone who's so deep into pornography, the time between that impulse to look and actually acting on it is so short? It felt like there was no firewall in between. And I just I realized, oh, they've killed their conscience. Literally, over the course of time, they've deadened their conscience. And that's perilous. The line between right and wrong is blurred, and at the same time, the carnal desires run amok, and it begins to rule their heart. And as he c- continues to feed off a pornography habit, and the conscience dies out, and his selfish desires take over, that is a dreadful combination. Desires run amok, and your conscience is no longer warning you. Now you see our dilemma. You see exactly why guys and gals are find themselves in such a difficult position. Now, pornography destroys his conscious ability to preserve a moral order in his life. But there is hope in this. Deliberate, consistent repentance can help recreate that ethical line and make it more clear and distinct. You know, the spirit works to give us the gift of repentance. It's a spirit that brings us this conviction in repentance. And as we repent, it helps to reawaken, which is what the Spirit does. It reawakens a deadened conscience. Every act of repentance is a small step of obedience, but it's that long, hard road of obedience in the right direction that begins to reawaken that conscience and brings it life again. It helps to redeem the conscience a little bit at a time and to put to death the selfish desires of his sinful nature. Conscience's fuzzy line becomes more distinct and his carnal desires slowly die out. A thousand small steps of obedience in the right direction rebuilds Christian character. It's not, not one radical turn is the way this usually works, though it can happen. God can radically take it away from someone. But you know at experience, most of the guys and gals who are struggling with this, it's that long, hard obedience over the course of weeks and months and years that helps them to recover the character and the, the conscience that they need to fight this battle. So obedience actually does matter. It really does matter for this fight. The antidote to adult conscience and selfish desires is the daily habit of quick repentance and consistent obedience. Now, when it comes to repentance, though, first and foremost, a repentance is vertical. David's repentance before God is of utmost importance. Whenever David chooses to look at pornography, his sin puts blinders on his heart and mind. So in the moment when he acts out, there is a bit of a God amnesia, a lack of God consciousness. He's lulled into this sin, into the carnal desires actually rule his heart. You know, and there's all kinds of things we can do with our conscience. 
we can actually choose to ignore God in the moment and act out on our sin. And he gets trapped then in his own little tiny kingdom where his sin is all that matters. But through repentance, his relationship with God is restored. And in confessing sin to God, the addict cultivates a right fear for the Lord. That his sin is ultimately an offense against a holy God. And that facilitates a right understanding of who God is. It's not just a matter of dealing with the sin. It's a matter of helping him to deal with the sin so he can see God more clearly. We asked David about the shape and contours of his faith in Christ. Is he fighting for faith or has he given up? You probably dealt with those strugglers who the, the battle has been so hard that they're struggling with assurance. The doubts creep in. It, it in fact, plagues their life. So David's consistent pattern of failure made him start accepting lies like he can't change or God doesn't care about him. We help David by directing him to biblical passage that remind him of spiritual realities. And we tell him that God will bring to completion what he started. And in the end, grace will triumph over sin. He doesn't need to actually be mastered by it. Now, David feels hopeless, but in Christ, he can find hope again. As we call him to put his faith in Christ and not his ability to fix things, as we call him to find forgiveness through Christ's blood and not in a miraculous turnaround, as we call him to find comfort fundamentally in the shadow of the cross and not some magical formula, he slowly regains hope. It starts to spill over into his life and wash over the despair, and his faith grows stronger. And fighting David's sin alone won't work. There is this, this tendency we have as disciples to have this myopic focus on this sin. You know, the battle can get so hard, we forget that he's, a, he's an image bearer. He's a person. There's much more to him than just this sin alone. I've had to say this to other disciples lots of times, saying, you know, if, if you're spending 99% of your time on this sin and 1% of your time on faith, you're failing them. You're just not doing them any service. If you're not talking about his struggles with his job or his difficulties in relationships or his pursuit of faith or his time in the word, you're not helping him be a Christian disciple and you're reducing all of him to this one sin, you've actually taken a myopic view of the sin and a myopic view of the person. A myopic focus on fighting sexual sin and losing sight of faith is a sure formula for losing this battle. Faith in Christ is the chief goal of Christian discipleship. And a weak, anemic understanding of the gospel is going to end up being a death sentence for him. So, the circumstance front. Now, the faith front, while it's most important, and you hear me on that, it's the most important, because the spiritual battle is the most important part of this. The circumstance front, I think, is the most urgent. Let me explain what I mean by this. I want you to think in terms of medical triage. If I were to show up in an emergency room, and my hand had a huge gash and I'm profusely bleeding, and then triage nurse looked at me and said, why don't you have a seat? We'll be with you in about 30 minutes. <laughs> you and I would both think, that woman's crazy. <laughs> I am bleeding to death. 
Why aren't you helping me right now? Well, we do the same thing as we help a struggler. You know, the, 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 their relationship with God is most important. It's most primary. And yet I can talk to them about their relationship with God, their theology of God, their forgiveness in Christ, the victory in Christ. And yet if they go home that night or that week and they spend all the next seven nights actually plunged in pornography, we haven't helped ourselves. <laughs> That's why I actually want to position myself to work hard at the circumstances early on in our conversations. I want to help them by doing the triage and helping David's heart and mind not be overwhelmed with the pornography because it's actually harder to make progress elsewhere on all these other fronts. Uh, so we start by asking David to be brutal about cutting off access to pornography. Cutting off access has to be brutal. You know, cutting off internet access if necessary has to be brutal. You know, in an internet age, it's inconceivable to not have access. But actually being very aggressive and cutting off access points and actually being really concrete on what that means and having a radical disposition about cutting off access points is really important for this fight. There needs to be tangible steps to help them get rid of access to pornography that's troubling to them. So boundaries are the barriers that an addict constructs to inhibit pornography. So for example, you know, software programs like Covenant Eyes or daily strategies of turning away from tempting billboards or computer screens in this, or, or magazines in the checkout aisle at the supermarket. You know, you think in terms of walls, the thicker the wall that stands uh, between the addict and the actual pornography, the better chance we have of actually starving out the problem. So what kind of boundaries are we constructing with David on his smartphone, his tablet, and laptop? You know, if he's doing nothing, and I'm surprised how often I have these conversations, and they're actually doing nothing in regards to boundaries, then we need to help him figure out what to do. You know, when I first started dealing with this years ago, computers were the main problem, but not any longer. <laughs> I feel like 90% of my conversations revolve around phones. And so learning to deal with the phone is actually important. So you can't just say to a guy, well, you got to go deal with your phone. You can't look at it anymore. Now, you know what I've had to do? I've had to become an expert on the iPhone. I've actually had to figure out what are the best ways to lock it down and think through what are the best ways to make sure this is not an issue anymore on their phone. And in some ways, you know, I, I'm, I'm, I'm not saying that the only way to deal with it is complete cutoff to access of any kind of Internet. No, I'm actually saying cutting off access to pornography. And, and you can actually lock down a phone pretty securely if you take all the appropriate steps. But I've had to think through this with a lot of tech guys to figure out what are all the ways I need to actually shut down a phone. So what do I want to do in a session if I'm working with someone and they say, my phone's a problem? Well, guess what? Next 30 minutes, we're going to talk through every aspect of his phone. I'm going to think through all the things that we need to think through. I'm not going to say, well, you need to go put, find some way to shut down your phone. And I'm going to get on there, and we're going to work through as many aspects as possible to make sure that phone is shut down. And if need be, I will be the administrator then on his phone. 
to make sure that he is denied access to what's necessary. But that's my, one of my encouragements to you. Uh, I think you need to understand your phone better to actually help out strugglers. You need to understand how to, and some of you are, are like me. You think, you, you don't know how much you're asking of me. I'm not that good with technology. I can, I can do the basics. But to work my way through all the aspects of a phone is asking a little bit too much of me. Well, then you're the exact same camp as me. <laughs> and if I can figure it out, then you can actually figure it out too. But that's one of my encouragements to you. you don't, don't just simply settle for saying you need to deal with the phone. A good rule of thumb for an addict. Boundaries need to be built thick enough to protect an addict from himself. Uh, any Christian who trusts in his own abilities to fight porn addiction is a fool. You know, what's an example of that? I'll, I'll get guys and gals who will shut down their phones, but guess who's the administrator? They are. <laughs> well, that doesn't work because when they're in a bad moment, what are they going to do? They're going to put in the code, bring up an, a dangerous app, and actually look at it again. So they need to be protected from themselves in order to appropriately fight this battle. Any Christian who trusts in themselves and their own ability to fight the porn is a fool. Scripture says he's infected or she's infected with pride. And what they need to understand is a sober judgment, Romans 12, 3. That's a realistic, humble perspective on himself, his weakness, and his vulnerability to sin. It's far too easy to underestimate the power that sin has over our hearts and minds. And that's the exact position that the devil wants us to be in, isn't it? To actually underestimate this, the way sin can affect us in this battle. Because the addict repeatedly and relentlessly gives himself over to the porn, he or she can't trust themselves. David slipped by lusting after videos on YouTube. So what did I tell him? Get rid of YouTube on every device and block it. What, what, what he showed me is that he couldn't handle the freedom to YouTube. So what do we do? We, we, we make a godly choice by removing that access to YouTube so that he can't use that as a portal anymore. Well, you say to me, well, I can, he could just go find videos somewhere else. Well, that's the point. <laughs> I need to make him work for it. And if it means I'm going to shut down every possible website that he's going to, then I'm going to go ahead and do that. I'm going to make him have to work for it. He needs to be willing to give up his freedom and access for this particular season. And I had to convince David the first time we had a conversation to get Covenant Eyes, which is, you know, what is it? It's a form accountability software. But, you know, fundamentally what it is, it's a shame-based tool. That, that's, what it, that, that's the basic essence of the program. You, you take what they're looking at online and you expose it to other people. And through that, there's accountability. But, you know, it's remarkable how even basic software like that can actually begin to help someone fight this battle. And to say, for those of you who may have used Covenant Eyes years ago and have not used it more recently, the technology has gotten better and better. Uh, in fact, I'll tell this story from Covenant Eyes. They had someone from the NSA, like one of these brilliant like math physicist kinds of guys whose family was so helped by Covenant Eyes, he went to them and said, I want to help you write a better program. And so the VPN that's now available on Covenant Eyes 
So it goes from not just looking at browsers, but literally scanning your whole phone. Is the technology help them to develop in order to make it much more comprehensive? Uh, so you know, don't underestimate what it actually do to be one tool, one means to help you in the fight. So I immediately asked David to put Covenant Eyes on his computer. As we help strugglers, we don't want to be surprised at how many guys are not taking basic steps. And in fact, in their struggle, have gotten lazy about taking basic steps. They know the basic steps, but they're not acting on them. And so as a part of us, helping them come alongside of them is encouraging them to pursue some of these means that are available to help them in the battle. Pride, especially David's self-confidence that he could control the problem, got in the way of him making wise choices to put filters on his phone and his tablet and his computer and built thicker barriers to help him in the middle of the struggle. Our goal is to build a fortified wall around David's lust-crazed heart so that once we've slowed down the bleeding, we can actually do the real heart work. I want to slow down that bleeding so then we can actually get on the inside of him and do some of that heart work. And as long as his heart is drowned in pornography, it's just going to be harder to sort through genuine heart issues. We'll be stuck in this defensive posture fighting the pornography and trying to help him sorting through his heart. But we're pulling the top weeds if we're doing that and not uprooting them altogether. So the self-front. Uh, when we find the term heart in the Bible, it's describing the core central part of who we are. You know, sometimes the heart has been called the command center. Uh, it, it is from the heart that everything flows out. You know this from Matthew 12 and Luke 6. Out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. I would say, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks, it acts, it dreams, it hopes, it sins, it does all kinds of things. And so what do we want to do? We want to be able to get to David's heart. You know, what's going on in terms of heart issues? We, 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 we can reduce it to just simple issues of lust. I had a guy who, this was my conversation with him. He said, as we talked through his heart issues, he said, it's just lust. And yet he was like stressed out at work and he was struggling in dating relationships and he was struggling in his relationship with his family. And I said, it is more than just lust. You can't reduce this to just a lust issue, though that's part of it. You know, is there a reckless pursuit of pleasure because he wants to satisfy his sexual cravings? Does he wrestle with boredom in a pietistic lifestyle? So porn is a way to fill the boredom. Is he looking for some sense of adventure? Uh, is he angry at God for not giving him a girlfriend or finding ways to satisfy his sexual needs? Is he bitter at his father for not providing accountability early on in his struggles? Is he looking for affirmation or comfort? How many guys have I talked to who, you know, when they describe their experience of pornography, say, the gal who's looking back at me looks back at me in a way that makes me feel like she wants me. That's part of their experience. And, you know, those guys who are actually creating pornography know exactly what they're doing. They know exactly what they're doing in trying to lure these men and women into it. 
There are goals and motivations that reside in David's heart and drive his actions. And we do the arduous work of uncovering the desires in order to make them explicit. We don't want to just know the facts about David's life, but we want to go beyond those circumstances and look at what's going on in David's heart. What does that mean? You know, it means as a discipler, you actually have to ask the questions that go beyond the superficial circumstances and probe the heart. You actually have to ask some of those deeper heart questions. That means the intrusive questions. You know, we, we can ask lots of questions about his circumstances, and we should to help him begin to build those barriers. But I need to know what is he worshiping? What does he want? What gets him going? What does he desire? What does he dream of? Those are the hard questions that press into his life and get beyond the circumstances. And managing his behavior and adjusting the circumstances are not just an adequate strategy for porn. Getting after the heart is really what's going to help David ultimately find change. David used porn as a means of escape. Remember I told you in the office he would shut the door and plunge himself into porn because he was stressed out of his mind. And he needed to find a way to emotionally numb himself and escape. But there were deeper issues in his life. You know, remember his skepticism of God's love, his bitterness at his father, his giving up on himself, his feelings of shame and rejection in the aftermath of asking a girl out, and his longing for some kind of just basic affirmation. So what do we do? We draw out lies and self-justifications that allow David to downplay the problem and stay stuck in the sin. David talks to himself about the problem, and these are the things he says. He says, it's not that big of a deal. I can get control of it. It's not going to hurt anyone. One day when I'm married, this will all go away. Or I don't want to be a burden to other people. You know, and what is this? This is his internal dialogue. This is the conversation he's having, and these self-justifications allow him to perpetuate the sin and stay in it and continue in it. He's preaching to himself a false gospel. And these are the candy-coated promises that actually allow him to coddle the sin and continue in it. And so what do I want to do? You know, we're dealing with this inner, the self-front, this inner part of his life. I want to get in the middle of that inner dialogue. I want to get in the way of those conversations he's having with himself. I want to help him to know, like, no, stop listening to those candy-coated promises because they are, in fact, a lie. But they don't come out easy. You know, you, you, you got to dig in there and help them to articulate this. Because these are the lies that run through their minds and hearts, and yet they haven't spoken them out loud. And funny, if you just get them to even speak it out loud, it feels discouraging to them, and yet it begins to help them face the reality of it. Because it's a way of beginning to confess it before the Lord and others. We draw these out and expose them to the light and encourage David to reject it. But I also actually want to ask David when we're dealing with his inner world about his fantasy life. Now, you might be a little bit surprised by that, but you think about the nature of this problem. If a man or woman has struggled with this for years, they have hundreds of images stored on the hard drive of their brain. So you've got to believe that in down moments when they don't actually have access to porn, what are they going to do? They're going to draw on an image, whether it's for a few seconds or for a few minutes for a while, They'll create their own movie reel. 
in order to arouse themselves and experience lust. So self-control is not just with the external temptations. Learning to say no to ungodliness also deals with our heart and our mind. We're helping to build basic aspects of self-control into their life. And what am I doing? I'm trying to expose their inner life so that we can begin to sort through it and deal with it. So I do not want to know the grimy details of their fantasy life. I mean, that's bad for my sanctification. It's not helpful for either of us. But I want to know if they are doing that, if they are taking images and fantasizing, and I want to be able to confess it and help them to understand the self-control that they need in fighting that problem. We, we, what we often find is actually when someone's fighting pornography, you have this whole external battle of temptations, and we build boundaries, and we learn to deal with the circumstances, and oftentimes you can get a guy or a gal to a very good place with it, but then the pressure that was on the outside shifts in, and you feel the pressure in their internal world because they can no longer access pornography easily. You've actually successfully found ways to deny them access and do a good job of shutting things down. So what are they gonna do in their down moments? Okay, well, they're gonna access those images in their brain because they have stuff here in their internal world. And so you've got to deal with that. You've gotta help them deal with that. The pressure shifts to that internal world. His sinful flesh is not going to give up the fight. And what do we expect after years of porn use? David will access images from his brain's hard drive just as often as he would have on his phone or his tablet or his computer. Now, just because he's built up filters and barriers to slow down access to porn doesn't mean he's learned self-control. The lack of self-control can show up not just in behavior, but in his internal world. And so we're going to help him to deal with this in his internal world. A lack of self-control can put a man or woman in a perilous spot. Now, accountability that focuses on behavior only and doesn't engage a man's heart or mind is insufficient. I think this is one of the typical rookie mistakes of disciples. Working hard at the circumstances, but not going after the heart and the internal world. And pursuing the heart, pursuing those lies and self-justifications, pursuing the fantasy life, pursuing that internal world is actually going to help the addict. We're teaching them, Titus 2.12, to say no to ungodliness. We're teaching them to build internal boundaries in this fight. And, you know, we also want to help David uh, with his identity in Christ. David has confessed that he's a major failure. You know, for a porn addict who professes to be a Christian, there's typically a tug of war between the flesh and the spirit. This is their daily battle. And doubt is so common that every shameful act causes them to wonder, how can I be a Christian if I keep doing this? That's a basic question they're going to ask themselves. And unbelief seeps into the heart and it poisons him. Does David see himself fundamentally as a porn addict? or a child of God? That's one of the most basic questions we have to ask. Uh, We've been talking about identity at the conference. Well, what is stronger in his identity? 
The struggler's sense of personal failure and self-condemnation can be so strong that his identity is overwhelmingly defined by what he does in looking at porn rather than his identity as a child of the great king. So what's his definition? It's not, I'm a Christian who struggles with porn. It is, I'm a porn addict. And what do I want to do? I want to help orient their life around Christ. So one of the other things I want to do in a very first session is I want to ask them, has this sin come to define you? Because if they're coming in at the point that they're coming in, often they're at a really bad spot with the way this sin has overtaken their life. And right there, I want to begin the identity work of not letting that sin become primary in their identity. I've asked this question more than once in a first meeting and seen tears begun to come down the face of a struggler. Because that that communicates to me right there, it has become all defining of them. So I want to be able to reorient them around an identity in Christ. Every time he looks at pornography, he feeds the sinful flesh, which makes a hungry beast stronger. So I like to use this picture of a, a dragon or a hungry beast. You know, what happens if you feed the hungry beast? Romans 13, 14. We, we feed the flesh. We feed this hungry beast. Uh, it, 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 if we keep doing that, it just grows stronger and stronger. His voluntary choices to look repeatedly eventually actually enslaves him. It's a nasty cycle. He chooses to look. He feeds a desire. The desire of the sinful flesh will grow stronger and stronger and stronger. And it motivates him to then choose again. The selfish desire for porn grows and grows and it grows and eventually overtakes his heart. So here's a basic goal. I want to starve out the sinful flesh to its access to pornography. The war actually can be won. And the longer we starve the sinful flesh, the less it actually has a grip on that person's life. I've seen, I've seen guys struggle with this, and you feel like the temptation has been strong for years. And it feels like they, they're not winning the battle. And yet as they starve the pornography, it feels like there's a point in which they finally break the sin. Like It's like they break the back of that beast. And it's finally being put to death. You can see that turn. It's remarkable. The porn addict needs to soak his life in the gospel. Sustained gospel contact is essential for his survival, which means the basic means of the Christian life are important. We're not going to underestimate being in church, studying the word, getting under good preaching, praying, rich Christian fellowship, taking communion, seeking out godly counsel. All those basic means are necessary to that fight. And we want to help him pursue the common means. And if we just hand David a to-do list and put pressure on him to perform, he will fail. And we shouldn't be surprised if he continues the cycle of addiction. A genuine love for Christ must be at the root of everything. So I'm not just going to say, go do these five things. I'm going to keep coming back to what is your identity in Christ and are you being sustained in the gospel? 
The greater David's sense of love and acceptance and forgiveness in Christ, the more strength he's going to have in this battle. What he ultimately does in the people, in, in the fight against porn, flows out of his relationship with Christ. Imperatives, what he does to please God, actually flows out of those indicatives, who he is in Christ. And then you see there, that last one, the people front. You know, rather than taking the burden on David's struggles all by himself, we need to help him find others and build his life into others. We help him to have accountability with one or two people. So I say this, especially if you're a pastor or you're a counselor, you need to work with the disciplers or accountability partners or the small group leaders who are often in, in interacting with them just as much as you are to help them with the battle so that this is a team effort. Our goal is vulnerability and transparency with a close circle of friends and disciples and spiritual leaders. Sin grows in the darkness like mold. When David brings things into the light, God can transform his sin and help the mold die. The responsibility is ultimately David's to build honest, vulnerable, loving relationship as a means of fighting the porn addiction, but it's not unusual for a discipler to have to push David to go beyond the comfort zone, become more vulnerable with other men. And we don't want to be caught as, uh, we don't want to be caught as the only believer who bears the burden of the sin. That's actually antithetical to God's purposes for being in community. We want other believers to actually help us with this. But now, what kind of accountability do you want? You want it to be aggressive and intrusive. You want it to be local and you want it to be regular. You know, what do I ex experience oftentimes? In my first conversation with a guy as we're talking about his accountability, he's going to say something like, oh, yeah, I have covenant eyes. Well, who gets your reports? Ah, oh, yeah, it's my buddy from Texas who we were best friends in college. And he lives in Washington, D.C. now. If he sees something, he'll call me out on it. Well, that's fine. You can let him still be your accountability, but why not find somebody in your own local church? <laughs> why not find somebody who you have to actually see every week? Why not find somebody who can actually say to you on Sunday, how are you doing? And also, how's the struggle going? So biblical accountability must be, and here's my four parameters, honest, frequent, local, and tough. Honest, frequent, local, and tough. So, you know, honest, if he's not transparent, if he's lying to us, we're not going to get anywhere. And it's a waste of my time. And it's a waste of his time. Frequent, I can't just check in on him once every three months. If he's struggling, I need to be engaged in the battle regularly. Local is just what I talked about. Not, not just a friend from somewhere far away or a parent who lives in another state, I want someone in his own local church engaged in this battle with him and tough. Like I said a moment ago, those questions need to be intrusive. If he's not ready for me to ask the hard, awkward questions, he's not ready to fight this battle. And I say this to you, especially if you're a pastor or a leader, uh, you know, leaders can't fight out of ignorance. You may not be the main accountability partner, but you need to know about it. Accountability, accountability must be placed in that larger framework, though, of Christian friendship. You know, it, it quickly becomes static if you only see him as this porn struggler. 
So we want there to be Christian discipleship. We want there to be strengthening of his faith and building more vulnerable relationships and learning to apply the gospel and learning to grow in faith. And pursuing accountability is just one aspect of his overall discipleship with Christ. Now, you know, no one was meeting with David regularly in my relationship with him. So I sought out other church members who could help him in the battle. And David's willingness to actually be transparent quickly was a huge help. His humility was a huge help in the battle. Pride will get us in trouble. Pride will undermine him. Pride will not make him be willing to expose things that he needs to expose in order for us to be able to fight this. And that face-to-face confession is crucial. David must confess immediately and consistently. Now, this is the upside of actually technology. You know, what used to have in conversations years ago was guys waiting until the next meeting. But now I tell a guy, you know, if you fall, I want to know about it within minutes. Uh, You just need to text me and tell me uh, I, I fell and I need you to pray for me right now. Why is it? Because I want him to get it out in the open right away. Well, what happens? The more he buries it, the the less he actually gets it out in the open, the more guilt and shame and fear of man and all those other things come into play and make him less likely to actually bring it to the light. So what do I want? I want confession to be quick, immediate, and consistent. I want his repentance to be immediate and consistent because that's what sharpens the conscience, remember, And that helps him in this battle. Now, you know, shame uh, uh, was significant in David's life. He had shame before God and before others. And we can assist David by helping him to think biblically about shame. So three basic frameworks for shame. Naked and exposed, Genesis 3, 7. Unclean and defiled, Isaiah 64, 4. And outcast and rejected, Genesis 16. And what I want to do, rather than him being lost in this ambiguous thing called shame, I want to actually equip him with a biblical lens for what he's going through with the shame. I want to give him a biblical framework with it. And David often felt dirty and unclean. He often felt worthless as he actually engaged with the porn. And interesting, you know, as we explored his shame and started thinking through it together, he confessed feeling defiled and unclean and unworthy. But what I didn't expect was that he had made a false assumption. He said to me, if the girl I asked out was going to reject me, I assumed everyone else would too. I already felt like a wretch because of my porn habit. Now I'm seething from her rejection. So there were some deeper issues there. You know, a a rejection, a lack of acceptance was actually fueling some of his pornography desires. He was emotionally numbing himself by looking at pictures of other women because he's rejected by the one woman he wanted to spend time with. That's painful. You know, rejection, a lack of acceptance, a lack of affirmation can actually be a deeper issue in his life. And it was helpful for us to unearth that in his relationship. So that's the main things I want to say in regards to pornography. Uh, I just want to stay, we'll just stay for five or ten more minutes and just answer if you have any particular questions on anything I said in this hour. Yes, and tell me your name. My name is Alec. I was wondering how important is it for your accountability partner 
Yeah, what a good question. Yeah, one of the one of the worst things you can do is actually accountability with someone who is actually struggling just as bad as you. So your ideal is to find someone who actually is way beyond that season of struggling and actually is in a good place spiritually and have them be the one speaking in because you know what happens if the other person is struggling too they're not going to have that same edginess that you need to push you in the struggle. And they'll be kind and merciful, but they're going to treat you the same way that they want to be treated. They don't want people to be painfully intrusive in their life. So, you know, you want someone who's beyond that season of struggle. In an ideal world, it's someone who's been through it too and has gotten through that sin and has moved on to a different season because they'll get it in a different way. But I will take anyone who's godly and not struggling with the sin to speak in and help us understand it. Other questions? Anybody? Do you have a list of things to do to lock down the phone? Um, yeah, I, I, uh, I'm working on a book with Jonathan Holmes right now, and we have a section that makes seven suggestions. Uh-huh. But it's not like it's not like if you went onto one of the web pages and it has like every step uh, on it. Like here, go to this part of the phone, get to general, click on this. It doesn't go that specific. It just names the different things you should think about in regards to dealing with a phone. Things as simple as you know, on a phone, for example, you can remove the browsers and yet. What you find is guys work their way and gals work their way through embedded browsers on apps. And so you actually have to think carefully about every app on the phone. Uh, some, some things like that. But if you emailed me, I can email you that list that we have in the book, the, the six or seven things that we put on there to think about the phone. Yes, tell me your name. Trace. Trace. Yeah. Does the process look different compared to someone, like let's say, a forty-year-old man? Yeah, you know, I I don't know in the sense of I don't do a lot of work with elementary school kids, uh, so I, I I would have to ask our youth minister who actually does a lot of that work with elementary school kids. So I just don't have a standard of comparison in terms of the people I counsel. I counsel primarily twenty, thirty, and forty-year-olds. And yeah, I mean, there, there is a difference in regards to the, the fight, but you know, it's not a sin of just single 20-year-olds. It's a sin of also married 30 and 40-year-olds. And th- there are differences in the battle, but there are so many similarities. The differences you know, often center around relationships at that stage in that regard, because obviously uh, pornography in marriage feels like betrayal to a wife. And it could destroy the trust, for example, is one of the differences that you experience. Yeah. Spencer? Spencer. How much do you recommend, like in a, with a husband and a wife, the husband sharing with the wife in um, the struggle, like details? Yeah, that's a good question. So, you know, if we think of 1 Peter 3, of the wife being a weaker vessel, that's meant physically, but I think it can have, like, emotional connotations to that, too. Um, I... I I think, in general, the wife should not be the accountability partner. 
Because what I've seen is that wives who put themselves in that position, if the husband continues to struggle, it takes an emotional pounding on the trust of the relationship. And more than once, we've gotten to a place where the wife says, I can't do this anymore. It's beginning to really shatter her trust. That's why I think she shouldn't be on the, the front lines of being the main accountability. Now, what I want to leave is room for differences in wives. So I, I just want to, in, 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 in a real world, there might be a situation where you think, well, a wife needs to be accountability for X number of reasons. But in general, what I think needs to happen is that the guy needs to have several godly men around him and the wife needs to have complete open access to conversation with those men. In that sense, like she does have access to everything that she needs, but she doesn't have to be the front line so that every time a husband falls, she's the one not only seeing the report, but having to call him out on it. And I take this out of Titus too. I want the main responsibility to be with godly men who are discipling him. I don't want the wife to actually have to bear the brunt of that responsibility. I think it's me older godly men who should bear that responsibility for the sake of their marriage. You recommend confession to the wife every time? I, I recommend honesty about it. So I'm not talking, I don't, uh, on the other end, advocate a complete ignorance policy either. Because that's not fair to the wife in understanding the nature of the struggle. But, you know, what we're not going to do is have the wife know all the gross details of it. Because it feels like betrayal and adultery. What we're going to do is figure out a way to help the wife understand the general nature of the sin as she's struggling with it. And, uh, and so one of our elders often will describe it as, uh, I mean, this is an analogy, the laundry basket. You know, all the dirty laundry, you don't want to take out every piece of dirty laundry and expose it. <laughs> you just need the general shape and size of the laundry basket. <laughs> a general sense of what's going on so the wife knows to pray for you and help you. Yeah, one last question and then I'm going to pray and dismiss this. Do you have like a general list of books that you generally go to or that you give to the countries? Yeah, it's a good question. So my, my favorite on this, the first one is Finally Free by Heath Lambert. That's my go-to typically. But there are several good books out there. So, you know, Tim Chester's book is out there and um, there's, a, there's a couple of others and then um, there's a number of good booklets in the New Growth Press and the PNR series uh, that are there. Now, you know, one of the things that you're not going to find is much on masturbation. So Winston Smith's uh, booklet on masturbation is, is really helpful because masturbation and pornography often go together. And so you can't just ask about pornography. You have to ask about masturbation, too. So Westminster Books, I always wonder what those guys think, because I order packets of the masturbation booklet in droves. <laughs> because it's embarrassing for a guy to like go to our bookstall and buy a copy of the booklet on masturbation. Uh, so I always keep free copies on hand to give them in a counseling session and deal with it. But yeah, that and then um, in the devotional series, my book on Pornography is meant to be a short devotional. It's not meant to be a comprehensive book to get, get a struggler in the word. Okay, well, let me pray. And then if you have any other questions, I'll stay up here and feel free to come up and ask me questions afterwards. Lord, thank you that you give us the opportunity to care for those who are struggling. And pray, I pray for every person in this room, whether they're struggling with this sin or whether they're trying to help a struggler. 
that you'd help them to show grace and love and wisdom in this battle. We pray it in your son's name. Amen. Copyright 2019, IBCD. All rights reserved. More free resources are available at ibcd.org.